Welcome to the Stalk Under Mythics podcast with your hosts, Donnie and Rob. We're here to help you thrive in a world of big data and complex analytics. Rob, hope you're doing well today. Welcome to another beautiful, sunny, comfortable North Carolina day. It's amazing outside. Looks beautiful from my window. How are you doing today? Uh, same here. It's looking good, feeling good. What do you got for us today, Mr. Donnie? Well, um, there's a lot of uh, conversation these days about uh, you know what's going on in the United States uh, economically, and uh, one of the things that keeps coming up on a regular basis is you know what what's happening. Um, to the middle class, right? So what, what, what is going on relative to uh, what people think has been sort of the mainstay of America's success historically, which is the fate of the middle class. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious, your perceptions, uh, so before we dig into it, your, your thoughts, understandings, feelings about what's going on with the middle class in the United States? Yeah, well, without looking at any, any figures, any data, um, I, what I keep reading about or hearing about as the middle class is shrinking. The, the rich are getting richer. Uh, the, the number of poor is growing. And, and just from my own perspective, I know it's, it's harder to raise a family on one income now than when my parents did it. Um, there's, there's more two-parent uh, households where both parents are working. And, it's, and college, I mean, everyone's complaining about coming out of college saddled with uh, student loans, student loan debt is astronomical. So I, I think it's much more difficult to survive and thrive in the middle class. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my perceptions would be along the same lines. And it's a little bit difficult to discern. We, we talked about the kids these days phenomenon. Um, and when I look at it, I feel kind of ridiculous, right? So we have all of this technology, right? We have the internet, we have all kinds of television we have access to. We have cars that can almost drive themselves now. We have washing machines, dishwashers. We've got all this stuff that, you know, particularly my grandparents' generation had no access to. I, I, I don't know if I've um, ever even told you this, but my uh, my mom, her family, they didn't even get indoor plumbing until she graduated high school. And so my grandparents lived without indoor plumbing um, up until uh, sort of the late 60s. Um, and then they finally got indoor plumbing. So I think about all these sort of modern technologies that we have access to, but at some level, it just feels harder. It feels it feels more difficult to, um, you know, pursue the American dream. It feels more difficult to, uh, you know, get my children's education, to get them in schools that are good, to uh, take care of their health, um, all those all those kinds of things. And so, I think I'm I'm probably right there with you, where 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 it just inherently feels more difficult. But again, I I just I don't know if that is just a function of, you know, <laughs> always believing the world's getting more difficult and, uh, you know, kids these days and my generation has it harder and all that kind of good stuff. And I'm pretty sure if I would go talk to my grandmother, um, who's unfortunately passed away now, but uh, I'm pretty sure she would be laughing in my face saying, you have no idea uh, what it's like to be in a, in a tough situation. Right. I agree with you. I, I think uh, my parents would say the same, same thing to me. 
And so, you know, one of the interesting things is, is when we talk about the middle class, people throw this around all the time. Um, but what, what is the middle class? When you think about the middle class, what do you, what do you think about it being? Oh, yeah. So I, I have read about this. And this is interesting because a lot of people define it uh, by certain economic de- demographics. What, what you earn determines where you are in the middle class. But what I've always felt and what a lot of other people feel is that it's so you kind of self-identify. It's more like your, your values, who you are, that place you in that, which I, I've felt that I grew up middle-class. I, I will always feel like I'm middle-class, but I know there's, there's a problem with defining it like that. I have a friend I went to college with who was middle to lower middle-class, right? And he makes so much money now. He is easily He's, he's beyond upper middle class. He is one of the uh, probably top 5% income, but he is still middle class in his mind because you don't ever leave that mindset. So I think there are two ways to define it. It's, you could define it just in terms of dollars or in terms of, I guess, character, values, and how you self-identify. So I think it's difficult. It is. And you know, even, if you, even if we just restrict the definition to sort of the monetary financial side of the world, even inside of that, it's it's really difficult to get a consistent definition of what the middle class is. Now, some, some things we have pretty good definitions like poverty. There's very explicit definitions, Um, but middle class is one where when you talk to different people and different kinds of folks doing different kinds of research, um, they will define it slightly differently. And so I think um, we have to talk a little bit about uh, the different ways that you define middle class before we dive into uh, what is going on with the middle class. And so even in the um, realm of defining middle class by socioeconomic status, um, there's a couple of different difficulties, right? So there's one um, sort of theoretical definition, which is just the middle percentage of the U.S. earning population. So uh, the middle 50% of uh, earners or income in the United States, or the middle 40% or the middle 60%. And even there, uh, different people have different definitions about whether it should be 40, 50, or 60%. Um, but the definition being defined by how much a person makes and where they are in the distribution of incomes in the United States. Now, the interesting thing with that is, is if you define the middle class by being the middle 40, 50, 60% of earners, um, the middle class can never grow or shrink. It'll always be the 40, the 50, or the 60%. It's just that the values of what defines that 40 or 50 or 60% uh, will change over time. But by that definition, there can never be shifts in terms of the number of people that are technically in the middle class. Okay. And then what's the other way to define it? There are a couple other ways to define it. So the other way to define it is to um, take the median income. And uh, you got to be careful here. You don't want to talk about mean income because incomes are so skewed and the, the mean is dramatically impacted by the skewness, whereas the median is a better representation of what the sort of average person uh, makes. But you can define it by um, percentages relative to the median income. So you can say, well, uh, you know, anybody who makes uh, 80 to 120% of uh, the median income is somebody who's in the middle class. And in that scenario, um, the advantage is you can actually, if the distribution of incomes were to shift, then you could see that more or less of the people in the United States are middle class, right? It just, you know, if the if the income distribution were to uh, get elongated or uh, become less normal, you could see shifts in percentage of people who fall into that definition of what the middle class is. 
But that also has problems, right? Because income is not the only thing that actually defines how, how much sort of financial power you have in an economy, right? There's also just measures of wealth, right? How much savings does a person have? Uh, you know, how many assets do they have? How many investments do they have? That kind of thing. So um, all that to say, it's, it's, it's difficult, even if you just confine the definition of the middle class to, uh, you know, sort of financial or economic status at a particular point in time, depending on how you define it can um, sort of shape the kinds of conclusions you can draw and uh, how you think about what's happening to the middle class. Okay. So for our purposes today, which, which way do you want to talk about? So for our purposes today, I want to ignore those definitions altogether. So um, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about what's going on with sort of the, the middle-ish part of the U S economic you know, distribution and ignore the technical definitions of, you know, is that a fixed percentage or is that something that changes based on the distribution and focus on just really what are the really big trends that are happening? What are the, irregardless of how you were to define the middle class, what are the things that are really influencing kind of the middle-ish part of the distribution of incomes and wealth uh, in the United States? And I think, you know, Focusing on that as opposed to those technical definitions, we'll sort of get around some of those things, which, um, you know, conclusions are actually influenced by the definition of what the middle class is. And so um, we're going to talk about the middle-ish part of the income distribution and wealth distribution in the United States. We're going to ignore the sort of social, psychological, sociological elements you were talking about. Um, And we're also just going to ignore the really specific and technical definitions as we talk through these things. Okay. so. Doing it that way, we're going to be able to talk about whether uh, the theory holds water, whether uh, it's getting much more difficult for us average guys to survive and thrive. Yep. So why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back and we can talk about what's really going on with the middle-ish part of the income and wealth distribution in the United States. Okay, Rob. So we are... um, Talking about what is going on with the middle-ish part of the income and wealth distribution in the United States. And again, we're going to ignore the technical definitions and the things that might be uh, you know, influenced by the technical definition and just talk about um, sort of broad trends in terms of uh, what is going on. And I think you know, one of the first places is when we you know, think about what's going on, we have to think about what's going on in terms of you know, income, like what is going on with income. Uh, in the United States and that middle-ish part of the uh, distribution of incomes. And um, when we talk about incomes, there are a couple things that uh, we have to be wary of. Uh, number one, we alluded to this in the first section, which is uh, incomes are are not normally distributed. They don't follow that kind of nice bell curve shape. Generally, you have people who are uh, you know more concentrated on the lower end and you just have people who earn amazing amounts of income. And so you have what's called a skewed distribution. And in that situation, um, when you're talking about skewed distributions, you really want to focus on the median value as opposed to the mean value. And the difference is, is the mean is the average, whereas the median is if you were to just line people up from lowest income to highest income, the person in the middle, how much would they actually earn? So we're going we're gonna to talk about median incomes is the first thing um, when we talk about this. The second thing is, is we have to talk about income, um, you know, relative to its uh, buying power, rel- relative to its ability to 
um, you know, buy things or get things. And, and, and when we talk about that, we're talking about real wages. Okay. So there's nominal wages and real wages and nominal wages are just, um, just how much are people making? And when you think about it right now, do people, do you think on average make more in terms of nominal wages? So just the dollar value of what they bring home versus what they did, let's say in the 1960s. Absolutely. And generally you'll see that you'll see that nominal wages will increase uh, just because of uh, inflation, right? So things cost more, people get paid a little bit more and um, you know, wages increase over time. And you can look at this in terms of the price of a car, right? Prices of a car in the 1960s, maybe you're paid $3,000, $4,000 for a car um, that was brand new. Now you're going to pay thirty dollars to $40,000 for a car that's brand new. Uh, but at the same time, wages have also increased over that time period, right? So people used to make you know thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dollars. Now people make tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so income and prices have both increased. And so that's the reason we have to talk about real wages which is being adjust for inflation. So um, the reason we focus on that is because we're trying to focus on what can the money that you're bringing home buy you? And it can buy you different amounts at different time periods, uh, depending on what prices are at a particular point in time. So um, when we talk about wages, we're going to talk about uh, um, uh, real median wages, which just means they're adjusted for inflation. And so um, what's your perception? What's your perception of uh, real wages for sort of the middle-ish part of the income distribution in the United States these days? Well, it's got to be much less. I mean, I look at what my father was making in the in the 70s and 80s and what my friend's fathers were making. And it's it's funny to talk about that now because that's that dollar amount sounds so low, but yet the, the my mom didn't work and most of my friend's mothers didn't work and they, and they you know everyone did just fine where whereas now everyone seems to be struggling so there's got to be something deeper to these numbers yeah <clears throat> well the interesting thing there's two interesting things to this um, in actuality real wages which is adjusted for inflation those have basically been um, relatively stable over the last uh, little bit so they haven't really been increasing or decreasing. Uh, they've been kind of stagnant, particularly in the middle-ish part of the distribution. And uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but um, certainly in the higher income areas, they've been increasing. Uh, in the lower income areas, they've been stagnant to maybe slightly decreasing, depending on how you think about it or what your baseline against. But in the middle, they've been relatively stagnant. And so what that basically means is um, you know, your well-being in the middle has just not really changed very much. Your income has gone up in absolute or or uh, nominal dollars, uh, but so have prices, and so it kind of nets out that um, in the middle you can buy about as much as you could uh, back in the '60s and '70s, and there really hasn't been uh, you know a big increase or decrease in that. And what about so the, what about the real cost of things then? So by adjusting for inflation, you're adjusting for cost. Now the interesting thing is is if you think about what <laughs> It's sort of an interesting thing. Like, um, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have cell phones. Um, we maybe had one TV. Uh, we didn't have, uh, we had one car that people were sharing. You know, there was, there, there was sort of a lot less that people anticipated and thought about as a standard sort of base level of comfort, luxury, well-being. And so um, one of the interesting things is that wages are relatively constant in terms of their buying power, but 
uh, people's sort of uh, baseline expectation about what they should actually have in their home has actually increased quite a bit in terms of the luxury and conveniences that people uh, assume that they should actually be able to afford. So don't tell me that this podcast is going in the direction of you're going to blame me for my, for my struggles <laughs> because I have two cars. My father had one. I have two TVs because my father had one. Is that where you're going with this? It's, it's our fault. No, no, not at all. Cause I don't think it is. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. Th- so ideally, like if you think about like, w- what are we trying to do? <laughs> As a society, our hope is that the average well-being in the United States goes up over time, right? Like we we don't want real wages to be stagnant. We want them to increase. We want people to be able to um, both afford the things that they need, but also to continue to save and invest for the future. Um, we we do all these things. Like we invest in um, technology. We work. We do all these things in order to advance well-being. And so the, the interesting thing is, is what this is saying is, at least in the middle-ish part of the distribution, uh, we just haven't seen that kind of growth. People are no better off now than they were you know, 30, 40 years ago. It's basically just been stagnant over that time period. Point number one is that in the middle-ish part of the income distribution in the United States, uh, wages have been relatively stagnant. Um, so well-being has not increased and is also... Uh, not decreased. And again, the the intent, the thing that we hope is that the average person's um, sort of well-being increases over time. And we just we just have not seen that in the United States in the middle-ish part of the income distribution. Now, the interesting thing about that is uh, this sort of weird little quirk. Okay. And so why, like when you think about um, our wages, how much we actually earn as human beings, um, our hope would be that that would be related to our productivity. Like productivity is how much value our skills, our knowledge, our abilities, how much value that those things create for the world and for our economy. And the hope would be that if uh, productivity goes up, that our wages would go up in a commensurate level. So, you know, if we provide more value, we get paid more and, um, you know, that would be that. But the interesting thing is, is that these stagnant wages are in the face of incredible gains in terms of worker productivity. And uh, this is strange because up until like around 1980, um, you know, workers were getting more productive and the more productive that workers got, um, their wages basically increased by the same amount. So if pr- productivity went up by 50%, um, wages on average would go up by 50% in the middle-ish part of uh, the income distribution. But what we've seen since 1980 is that even though productivity has gone up astronomically, um, the wages have not kept up. And so there's been this major divergence between increases in worker productivity and increase in workers' wages. And so um, workers, in theory, are creating more value, but getting less of that back in terms of wages. Wow, that's pretty frustrating because I, I do agree. I mean, it just without even seeing the data, it, it I feel like we're so much more productive and the technology advancements have been astronomical over the last few decades. And so that's the interesting thing, right? Like, so um, we as society invest in all these things with the intent that, you know, the average life gets better, um, which means we can afford more of the things that we use on a daily basis and that well-being actually increases over that time period. 
And what we're seeing is we do see the increases in productivity driven by technology, better work processes, you know, all the things that we've done to get better. Um, but that's really not flowing down to the middle-ish part of the income distribution. So the question is, where does all that go? And um, one of the things that's um, um, sort of obviously true in the United States over that time period is that most of those gains in productivity are flowing through to those on the higher end of the income distribution. Okay. So the the CEOs, the guys in the corner office, that kind of thing? Yep. So when you look at... Um, uh, there's a bunch of different ways to talk about this. One of them, um, sort of the, the less um, the less sort of evaluative statement is to talk about uh, income decompression. And income decompression just means that, uh, you know, the folks who are at the top end are getting more and the folks at the bottom end are getting less. And so you're decompressing, right? So you're, you're allowing incomes to vary more between the lowest and the highest, uh, highest earners. Um, another way to talk about this is wealth inequality or income inequality. And so this is just what is the relative difference between, you know, the top earners and the lower earners. And um, if you go back and you look at it, um, the top 20% of earners in the United States right now um, get over half of the income in the United States. So that top 20%, they're getting, I think it's around 53, 55% of wages in the United States go directly to those folks. Where if you went back to like 1970 plus or minus, it was around 40 to 43%. And so um, you just seen this sort of, uh, and, you know, from 42 to 43 to 52 to 53, um, just like 10%, you may be like, oh, that's not such a big deal. But that's a huge deal. That's a huge shift in terms of the concentration of incomes to the highest earners in the United States. Well, that is a lot. But, well, that's okay. So that does sound like a, a high percentage, but is that something that's unique to the United States, or is that going on everywhere? It is something that's unique to the United States in terms of the level of uh, differentiation between the highest and lower, lowest earners. The G7 countries, which you have to you know, think about comparing countries that are relatively similar in terms of structure, economic output, those kinds of things. And when you look at the G7 countries, the United States has uh, by far the highest uh, differentiation between the lowest and the highest earners. And so um, you know, this is not something that's been going on across the world at the same level. Certainly there is, you know, uh, <laughs> decompression of incomes has been happening around the world, but at a much more rapid and much more sort of noticeable rate uh, in the United States. And, you know, the interesting thing is we talked about uh, what is the middle class. And we said, if you think about economic terms, you can think about it in terms of, um, you know, income, but you can also think about wealth. And so we said the middle-ish in terms of income and wealth. And so the interesting thing is um, that is true of incomes. It's even a bigger deal in terms of wealth. So uh, the wealth gap, if you look from like 1989 um, until most recently, the uh, 5% of the richest, you know, sort of U.S. population owned about 114 times the wealth of, uh, of, the, of the median. Um, that is more than doubled. So right now, um, the richest 5% own about 248 times the wealth of those that are in the median part of the distribution of uh, wealth in the United States. And so um, incomes have gone up for the highest earners. That compounds itself in the ability of those people to save and to invest. And right. so what you're seeing is not only is the income gap or the income differentiation increasing in the United States, 
the wealth is increased, the wealth differentiation is increasing at an even more rapid rate because the people with the highest incomes have the disposable income to be able to do those kinds of things like invest and to, you know, start companies and um, save and, you know, all the things that are going to increase, increase the wealth of the, the, them personally and their families. Wow. So those of us in the middle, Mr. Medium guy, like, like you and me, we're, we're working harder, spinning our ways faster, but we're relative to past generations. We're not getting anywhere and not, uh, not only in, in real wages, but in the ability to pass on any sort of wealth to our, to our children. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, it is, uh, it's interesting that um, as this is happening, the, the other thing that's happening is this sort of really interesting thing. So we talked about real wages and real wages is a way to sort of control for, uh, you know, the buying power of, uh, you know, income at any particular point in time, because it um, controls for inflation, which is just sort of the changes in underlying prices over time. And the way that you calculate inflation, there's uh, uh, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, does, does this entire, I mean, it's just amazing the process they go through to try to find out the consumer price index. And once you have that, there are different ways to think about it. Um, but within that, they have these different groups of things that people actually buy on a regular basis. And, um, you know, the real interesting thing is that, uh, you know, real wages have stayed relatively constant across all of those buckets. Um, but when you look at those buckets that people spend their money on, um, there, there's this interesting phenomenon, um, which is a lot of the things that we consume. So when you look at TVs, computers, cell phone service, household furnishing, cars, clothing, the kinds of things that we consume, um, there have been real increases in terms of the efficiency at which those things have been produced. And so those prices, those real prices adjusted for inflation have actually gone down over time. So we're able to, for the same income, afford more of those things, those things that we consume on a daily basis have actually gotten cheaper relative to what they were um, back in like 1990s, 1980s. And that makes sense. Those things that you mentioned, I think about when I was a kid and I compare that to like, to like toys and clothing. My parents, I know they used to complain about, I, I have a, I did not have very many toys. I laugh at what my kids have here, but these, these ridiculously cheap toys that we get from China, <laughs> from everywhere else. And then the clothing, I don't really, I mean, when you, it's ridiculous what we spend for our kids clothes now compared to when I was a kid. I remember, you know, being in the store, my mom, I could just see, I could feel like the tension when it's back to school shopping, like, Oh man, she wouldn't say it, but you know, whether we can afford the new pair of jeans for the, you know, this year and all that, that was a struggle. And that, that kind of stuff does seem cheaper to me. And it is right. Like when I was a kid, I mean, we had three or four toys in a given period of life. Um, yeah. And uh, my parents actually kept pretty much all those toys and they fit in a closet, like in a literal yeah. closet in my house. Um, but as I sit here recording this, I'm actually sitting in a room, the society playroom we have for our kids, which is just full of all these toys. And so the, the part of the reason is, is because the price of those things is so much less expensive relative to what it was when we were kids. Right. And so um, the ability of a dollar to buy those things has increased dramatically. And, you know, it's all the things that we consume, all the things that we use. Now, on the flip side of that, um, there are some things that have far outpaced the general level of inflation. And those are the things, and, I, and this is what I find so fascinating. 
those are the things which actually um, you know contribute to our well-being and our human capital. So human capital are the knowledge, skills, ability, and other characteristics of individuals. This is an area where I spend, um, you know, what, what little research I do do, this is the area that I do it in. Um, and, uh, you know, it goes all the way back to the wealth of nations um, and, you know, some Gary Becker and a bunch of other folks uh, really came to point out that one of the things that actually drives success of countries or companies or anything else is the human capital of the people or in that country or in an organization. So the knowledge, skills, ability, you know, the characteristics. And that includes things like health and it includes things like education, experience, and all those kinds of things. And so the interesting thing is, is that even though wages are relatively flat, meaning the dollar buys, a, you know, the, the income that we get now buys about as much as it did back in the 60s or 70s, the place where that is not true is in the places where we make investments in our human capital. So medical costs have gone way up. So hospital services, medical care services have far outpaced general uh, inflation. So what that means is if wages are stagnant, then our ability to pay for medical treatments and medical care has actually gone down over time. So as a percentage of our income, um, in sort of the, the a real sense, we are much less able to afford medical care now than we were back in the sixties and seventies. That makes sense. So what are some of the other big ones that are that are crushing us? So the other big one is college tuition, college textbooks, those kinds of, course. of things. Yeah, yep. of course. And so um what's happening is because these uh folks in the middleish part of the distribution because their wealth is uh, relatively stagnant, because they're well, actually even going down in some, some cases, um, but incomes are relatively stagnant. Um, they can afford a lot more of the sort of day-to-day items that they consume, but are much less able to afford investments in the future. So educational and medical investments. And if you think about life, um, you know, really like what you want is you want to live a good life where you're healthy and where you can uh, learn more and you can take those learnings and you can express them um, by applying them in different jobs and you can accumulate wealth so that you can pass it along to the next generation. Your kids don't have to strive as much as you did. And the fascinating thing about it is the things that kind of placate us, the things that kind of um, we consume and we use on a daily basis have gotten cheaper um, relative to wages. But the things that are going to set us up for the future, those investments, have gotten a lot more expensive over time. Wow. That, that isn't, that's the most interesting thing about this whole, about this whole topic. So the things that can make us to increase our human capital and can, that can enable us to pass wealth to the next generation, like getting them to college and keeping us healthy. Those are the things that are crushing us. Yes. And so if you think about the person in the middle-ish part of the distribution, um, they can buy more TVs because they're cheaper. They can buy more cell phones because they're cheaper. They can buy more clothing because they're cheaper. They can buy more furniture because it's cheaper. They can buy a bigger house because it's cheaper. Right. They more can't stuff. more stuff. They cannot afford to invest in medical care and they cannot afford to invest in education at the same level that they could historically. And, you know, again, mm-hmm. that's why you see, well, we, we'll, we'll talk about this some other point. 
like the number of people going to college has been relatively constant, but the amount of educational debt has just been skyrocketing in the United States because in order to, you know, invest in that particular, um, you know, part of their children's future, people are going into debt over that. Right. And, and it's becoming more right. expensive. So people have to go into debt over these things. Yeah. And th- this sort of makes sense because that's what you hear the younger generation. They're coming out of college saddled with ridiculous debt from student loans. And then their parents, you hear stories in that generation of, you know, one sickness, one health problem that is not covered by insurance and they have to file for bankruptcy. Yeah. One of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States is medical expenses. Um, yeah. And it's an interesting thing. Like, um, we talked about wages, so wages being sort of the, particularly just the the dollar wages of people in the United States. Um, when you look at um, uh, benefits, benefits have actually increased; um, their cost has increased by about twenty five percent over the past couple of decades for employers. And so, what's actually happening is is because of the medical expenses and uh, you know things associated with that, like insurance going through the roof, employers are you know because we have this strange system where Health insurance is still largely tied tied to employment. Employers are picking up more of that, but that's keeping them from paying people more, and it's basically sucking up all of the um, additional, um, you know, money that employers will be passing along to their employees is going to medical expenses. Yeah. Oh man, this <laughs> this this sounds uh, like a lot of dark clouds, Donnie. Well, it's not a, it's not a lot of dark clouds. Um, it's an interesting thing. And so if we just you summarize this, so like what is going on with the middle class in the United States? So number one, um, wages are relatively stagnant in terms of real wages, real wages, again, okay. are adjusted for inflation. And so, um, in theory, that means you're no better, you're no worse off than people were, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. Right. Um, but number two, what we're seeing is a divergence in terms of productivity and wages. So uh, people are much more productive, but their wages have not been keeping up with that pro- productivity. And uh, sort of as a corollary yeah. and as a sort of follow along on that, what we have seen is um, much higher levels of income decompression, meaning that the folks are getting paid high are getting paid more. The folks are getting paid less are getting paid less. And we've also seen that translate into Um, you know, major differences in terms of wealth. So when you think about household wealth, the uh, amount of savings, investments, and other things that people have outside of their their income um, has been relatively stagnant in the middle, maybe even going down a little bit, but it's been increasing dramatically for those who are, you know, high income earners. And, uh, you know, the follow along of that is is that even though um, we've seen a relatively um, flat real wages, the ability for those wages to pay for things like televisions and cell phones and sort of the, the niceties of life has actually increased, but the ability of those wages to pay for things like education and medical expenses has actually gone down way down relative to what it was 30 or 40 years ago. And so um, it creates sort of weird incentives and weird patterns in terms of where people in the middle are making investments and how they're choosing to spend their money. And, for those that are still trying to invest in education, it's putting them in a situation where there's this tremendous burden in terms of debt, um, you know, at the beginning of their lives, or their their parents are having to take that on uh, and try to pay for that over the end of their lives. And so there's just a bunch of sort of dynamics this is creating for people in the middle-ish of the income and wealth distribution. All right, Donnie, welcome back. That was a lot to digest. It <laughs> uh, doesn't make me feel too great. 
about uh, the future financially. So, so you summed up the problems. So going forward now, um, I guess, what does it all mean? Where do we go from here? And what, if anything, can we do about it? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, this is one of those conversations that can quickly go uh, in various ways, depending on your philosophical perspective and your political beliefs and, you know, all those kinds of things. And I think the, the thing that I want to focus on is really uh, the perception versus reality. So when we started up front, you know, we, we both said that a little bit of our perception is that some things just feel harder. It just feels more difficult for people that are in the middle-ish part of the yeah. income and wealth distribution. And so um, I think the reality is that's true. Like there, there's certainly a kind of squeeze going on for people in the middle, but it's a nuanced squeeze, right? So um, real wages are relatively stagnant and, and, you know, inherently that's not good. Like we'd, we'd prefer that they increase, but it's also not inherently bad because it means people are about as well off as they have been in the middle-ish of the distribution. And so, you know, maybe that's a little bit indifferent, but the, the nuanced piece of that is that the things that sort of preoccupy us on a daily basis are getting cheaper in real terms, whereas the things that are going to set us up for the future and really build wealth are actually getting more expensive. And you can see that in the way it plays out in terms of the distribution of both income and wealth in the United States, that there's a bigger disparity between those who are earning a lot and those who are earning a little. That that multiplier that people often talk about has gone up uh, tremendously over the past few decades, particularly since like the 1980s. And at the same time, the thing that's gone up even more is just the the gap in terms of wealth. And so um, those are just the realities. Now, is that a problem? Um, should we do something about it? That's a hard thing to answer, right? It, it all depends on your philosophical perspective. It all depends on what you believe the objective of a society is. Um, it depends on a lot of different things. But the thing that is clear is that you know, some of these things are worldwide trends, but there's a uniqueness in the United States in terms of how some of these things are playing out. When you look at some of the other countries, um, they've taken these things on, you know, through socialized medicine in some cases, through free education. Uh, in some cases, the United States has not. And so I think there are just some interesting questions that this brings up about what we should do in the future and what we should focus on and the kinds of policies that we may want to um, you know, interact with and as, as we move forward. Okay. Well, you made a lot of good points. I mean, I, I definitely see it just comparing my, to my childhood, right? I have, my, my kids have more and better toys than I did. I have a nicer car relative to the car my dad have, and I have nicer TVs. I've got more stuff, but the whole question of college and healthcare for, you know, forget it. There's, there's no comparison. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, the, my parents' insurance, um, I feel like, you know, maybe I paid $5 when I went to the doctor and that was it. And pretty much from there, it was taken right, care of, right. you know, from from that point forward. Yeah. And now you, you go in and like, it could be a full-time job just to deal with all the billing and things that come through from the insurance companies relative to all these different hospitals and things that you interact with. Like, you know, I broke my wrist a couple of years ago, had to have, uh, you know, metal put in it. So I'd have surgery. 
Um, there's like five different organizations that were billing me for the surgery. Insurance was paying some, they weren't paying. Like, it's just all more complicated and it's a lot less covered, right? We have these massive deductibles. Um, you know, that's a big deal. That's a big uncertainty in terms of, you know, my future, my well being for my family. If one of these things happen, if I were to have a heart attack or, you know, a big bout of cancer or any of those kinds of things, right? That's, that's a real big burden. Yeah on me as an individual and for my family as a unit. And it's just a much bigger deal relative to incomes now than it used to be when we were kids. Yeah. Well, you definitely found a topic where perception definitely matches reality, right? I mean, it feels tougher on the middle class these days, much tougher than it did generations ago. And I think uh, what, what you showed us today, it really bears that out. Yeah. I, I think the nuance piece, and and I think that when, there's two things I think get kind of lost in the conversation about what's happening in the middle class. One is like, how do you define the middle class? Like different people talk about it in different ways and they can read, lead you to slightly different conclusions. Um, but then number two is, you know, people can take the same set of facts and argue either way. They could say, well, all the things we've done over the past few decades, look, people are just as well off as they were, you know, back in the seventies or eighties. And someone on the other side could say, no, we're, we're no better off than we were in the 70s and 80s, and our objective should be to better, be better off. And, you know, that's the same piece of information that wages are relatively flat um, in real terms, and you can sort of spin it one direction or the other. But the real story is much more nuanced than that, which is the things which drive generational wealth are getting more expensive, whereas the things that we consume on a daily basis are getting less expensive in real terms. And so, again, it's not just the top line number in the situation that gets to the story of what's really going on. It's the next level below that. And in terms of, uh, you know, analytics and anamythics, um, I think that's the thing that, that, that we have to focus on in this situation, which is that top line information can be spun either direction and people will do that. You know, different people that say the policies of trickle down economics work. Um, we'll spin it one way. The people who say the trickle economics don't work, we'll spin it the other way. But the real story is when you get into the numbers underneath there, when you start digging into that. And it takes time, energy, effort to really dig into those numbers and to think about it in a nuanced way. And uh, the point is that the real story is hardly ever as simple as people want to make <laughs> it out to be, right? It is yeah. hardly ever the top line that's actually telling you the entire story of what's going on. Right. It's not just what was inflation in 1978 versus 2021. It's not just what I make compared to what my dad made. Yeah, it, it's it's so much deeper than that. Yep. This is one where I think a lot of people's perceptions are probably not that far um, from reality, but it is one where different people will try to take those top line pieces of information and spin it in different directions. And so, um, again, just important to really dig into those numbers to really understand what's going on, to understand in this case, if someone tries to say that, you know, you're just as well off as you were 30 or 40 years ago, or someone like you was 30 or 40 years ago, um, to be able to really understand, well, is that true? Or is that not true? And in you know, some dimensions it's true. We can buy a lot more TVs with the same income. We can buy a lot more phones. Um, but it's also untrue in a bunch of dimensions, which is it is virtually impossible um, you know, to buy the same level of education that we could 30, 40 years ago, it's virtually impossible to get the same level of medical care, uh, you know, in real terms as we could 30 or 40 years ago. And so the story is just uh, much more nuanced. Yeah. So Donnie, Sonny D has left the building. What happened to him? 
Well, I, you know, this is not one where um, <laughs> it's necessarily good or bad. It is just one where there is a certain reality, right? There, there's certain things that are actually happening. Like there, there are lots of places where I believe there are really good news stories. Um, and we focus on some of those things that are happening that people yeah. aren't necessarily consciously aware of. Um, this is one where I think there's maybe a little bit more awareness, but a little lack of nuance in terms of uh, where people understand that. So um, this is not meant to be the anti sunny D anti, you know, positive thing, but what this is really meant to be is just to say that there's a reality. And um, when we get into the world of public policy and really thinking about, um, you know, how do we sort of guide our society to a place that creates better outcomes for as many people as possible? I think it's important to really focus on, you know, what those realities are, irregardless if they're positive or they're negative or they're somewhere in between. And so today's show was just really an attempt to uh, to get into some of that nuance and really kind of uh, talk about what some of the implications are for the people who exist in the middle-ish part of the income and wealth distribution in the United States. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. That was, that was good stuff, Donnie. I guess now I'll just go open a 529 college savings account <laughs> and, and start jogging for, for my, uh, my own personal health. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it is interesting, right? The incentive should be to, and, uh, and I am, you know, supremely guilty of not doing this, but the incentive as it becomes a higher part of your um, income should be to actually have preventative kinds of interventions, right? So to exercise and to eat well and, you know, do all those kinds of things. And um, hopefully maybe for me, it'll eventually get down to a place where all those things kick in and I start doing that. But so far it really has not had that big of an impact on my choices and decisions. So in any case, uh, I appreciate it, Rob. Hope uh, you have a great week coming up. Thanks again for uh, being a part of this podcast and, for those who are listening, as always, you can reach out to it as uh, to us at animythics at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, love to chat with you. And so um, between now and the next time we talk, we hope you have a great week. Stay happy, stay healthy, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. It's like food for your ears.